Father, thanks for a gorgeous morning. Thank you for bringing us out to your house to worship you, to study your word, to know more about you. Open minds, open our hearts, help us to understand and see and hate what you hate and love what you love. In Christ's name, amen. Talking about uh, sin, and hopefully we'll get through a lot of this today. Um, Last week we ended up with this slide here talking about sin. Um, basically saying it's not eternal. You know, there's a lot of people who say, well, if your God's so good, why doesn't He do something about sin? And the answer is, He is. Um, he's not doing it on our time frame, is He? We look at some of the evil of the Holocaust and some of the evil going on in the world today and we scratch our heads and say, where is God? God's there. God's dealing with sin. God will erase it someday. But sin's got to run its course. God is allowing sin to run its course. God's allowing... Rebellion to go as far as it can go before he ultimately destroys it. And that way there's no doubt in anybody's mind in eternity that God is bigger than sin. God allows sin to do sort of its own course. Some have asked, you know, why, does, why did God allow Satan to continue and do what he did? And the answer is God wants to destroy sin, but to destroy it, he's got to allow it to run his course. And uh, in eternity future, when we look back, we'll see that sin did its best to overthrow God and didn't win. God will destroy sin someday. It's not merely the absence of good. The absence of good could be just neutral, right? It's not the absence of good. It's the presence of evil, of rebellion, of, as R.C. Sproul said, treason against God. Um, how do you know what evil is? You compare it to what good is. It's a comparison kind of thing. Um, how do you know what black is you put next to white? Um, I do a lot of work in digital photography and the cameras don't lie. Your eyes do. You know that. Eyes lie. Cameras don't. Um, you can look at something. I can take a picture in here of something that is white and I put it on my computer and it looks orange. Or Actually, in this case, it would look blue-green. And the reason it will look blue-green is because the fluorescent lights make white look blue-green. But your brain takes care of that for you. So when you look at a white sheet of paper, it's still white, even though technically it is blue-green because your eyes are taking care of what we call white balance. It gives you a different perspective. Cameras don't lie. And, and when you, God looks at sin, you, we might look at some and say, well, that looks really white. And then when God looks at it, it is black because he has a different perspective than we do. When we think something is good, it may be as black as night and we can't see it because our eyes don't catch it. God sees it. God knows what it is, what it really is. Here's the thing. It always tries to disguise itself as good. We talked about that last week. Evil is very good at passing itself off as good. That's how it gets people to do it. It's virtuous. It's nice. Um, I read, um, I don't know what it was, Monday or Tuesday, the American Psychological Association, which you know that is, right? A bunch of crackpots getting together. And, all right. American Psycho Psychological Association got together and decided that what they call, what is the name of the thing? Um, something therapy where you try to change someone who's gay into straight. Um, I forget what it's called. No, it's, it's, it's an R. Yeah, it starts with an R. I can't remember. It's just slipped my mind. But they decided that that is bad. In fact, um, they passed a resolution. I think it was like 128 to 4 or something like that. That um, that kind of therapy is bad. So the American Psychological Association has determined that if you're gay, it is not appropriate to try and counsel you to become straight. And uh, I was listening to Moody Radio and the moderator said, well, that's seem maybe surprising to some people. It's like, it's not surprising to me. What do you expect from a bunch of pagans getting together and deciding what's right and wrong? What do you expect? Confusion. Confusion. They got the wrong standard. All right? Um, the, the, the idea of God's creative order and things like that is not even something that they would consider. Of course they're going to come up with the wrong answer. But see, in their mind, it's a good thing not to do that because you're destroying the person's ego. You're destroying their self-esteem. You're destroying their identity. You're not supposed to do that. That's a bad thing to sit in judgment on somebody's self-identity or in this case their sexual identity. That's a bad thing to do. 
So what does evil do? Evil disguises itself as something good. And how did Satan get Eve to take the apple? What did she see? She saw that it was good, pleasing to the eyes. That's the way Satan operates. That's, that's the way evil operates. Evil passes itself off as good. And that's how Hitler could get his nation to slaughter six million Jews because it was good to do that. That was a good thing for society. It was good. And that's why he could get them to slaughter all of the handicapped people. That was a good thing to do. That was good. And people bought into it. See, how do you get somebody to do something evil? You tell them it's good. And you make them think it's good and they'll do it. It's not merely the frailty of the flesh. It's not that you just uh, are weak. Sin is more than that. Sin is rebellion. Sin is an active rebellion. Is it true that your flesh is weak? Yeah, your flesh cannot please God. Romans tells you that. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. What is your flesh? It's your fallen humanness. It's what you lug around every day. It's your fallenness. It cannot exist without the concept of good. Evil is the opposite of that which is good. God is good, right? So before creation, was there evil in the universe? No. There was no such thing as evil. Because God is totally good. This is interesting. It's the bitterest enemy to itself. If you leave it alone, it will destroy itself. Sin is self-destructive. People, and I, I think people don't understand that. And we're going we're to study that a little bit when we get to Romans 6, when we talk about salvation and the concept of sanctification. Because Romans 6, Paul says, you are a slave to God or you're a slave to your sin. Pick one. It's one or the other. Because everybody's a slave. And what's the cry today? Well, I don't want God because I want to be free to do what I want to do. Well, are you free? No, No, you're not free. And Paul says it's an axiomatic truth. Whatever controls you is your master. That's an axiomatic truth. It's It's a truth that's a given. Why do people do sin today? Because they're slaves to it. And if you leave them alone, what will people do? They will destroy themselves. And if you want to picture that, look at Michael Jackson. Look at these high-profile people that have all the money in the world and all the resources in the world and get all the drugs they want. What will they do? They'll OD. They will destroy themselves. Sin is self-destructive. How do you get a sinner to kill himself is you give him all the sin he wants and he'll destroy himself. Sin is self-destructive. It did not originate as a result of the creative power of God. This is very important. We talked about this, so we don't need to delve into it too much. God didn't create it. God allowed it, right? He allowed it in the universe. He didn't create it. He didn't make it. It's not part of His creation. It was not. Now, He knew it was going to happen, and He allowed it to happen. But He didn't make it. He didn't create it. And someday He will eradicate it. How do you know sin is universal? How do you know everybody's sin? I mean, the Bible says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we, you know, some people argue that, yeah, not me, I'm not as bad as the other person out there. Well, historically, has there been anyone who has not been a sinner? One. So out of 40 billion humans, 39,999,999,999 decided to go the sinful route. Even Enoch. Even Enoch. Everybody has sinned except Jesus Christ. And that's one of the arguments we're going to... Dig. We talked about it earlier and we'll dig back into it a little bit deeper when we look at the concept of original sin. And we toss that word around Pelagianism where Pelagius said that Adam's sin does not come to us. We do not have original sin. Rather, we choose to become a sinner. We're born innocent. We're born without sin and we decide to become a sinner. Well, and that's the case. What has all 40 billion humans, save one, done? Made that decision. That's a, that's a non, that's a non statement right there. All men are proven to be sinners. Everybody has sinned. Conscience. How do you know evil exists? Well, what do all people have? All people. The conscience. Every human being that has ever lived has some concept of right and wrong. 
Now, the dials may be filed up, right? You may think in some culture something is right when we consider it wrong, but everybody has a concept of right and wrong. Now, the, the, you know, the, the liberal scholars and the anti-supernatural people have a hard time, and the evolutionists have a hard time coming up with this. Where evolutionarily did the concept of a conscience come from? Do animals have any consciences? Why do we? Where'd that come from? I know we are, but how do you explain that if you're an evolutionist? Yeah, but you could you could argue that that's part of the continuation of the species. But you don't see baboons having trial for murder. Well, they their trial is killed. Yeah, they don't they don't have trials. There's no legal code, right? You don't see that in the animal kingdom. Where did that come from? Well, you know the Bible tells us where it came from. They were created in God's image with a moral thing, and they're called a conscience. It's there. Everybody has it. And Paul argues in Romans 2 that the Gentiles who do not have the law, when they do by nature the things contained in the law, they're a law to themselves. What does that mean? All that means is even the Gentiles, even the pagans, even the non-Jewish people who, who have a moral code show that there is a moral code out there. They prove it by their very actions. They have a conscience. Every society has this. Religions all have a concept of good and evil. Every religion has this concept of good and bad. Where did that come from? God created good and evil came into the world and everybody knows it. We all know it. Every human being knows it. And Scripture tells us that all are sinners, right? Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Your heart is a lot more wicked than you think it is. I've been reading a book on Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian that ever lived on this continent. And uh, when he was 18, 19 years old, he wrote some resolutions, 70 of them, that, guarded, that guided his entire life. Very interesting read. Um, and he saw his heart as desperately wicked, and many times in his diaries he would talk about struggling over his own wickedness. And here's probably one of the godliest men that ever lived on this continent, and what was he consumed by? His own failings. What about Paul? Paul says, it's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am protos. Number one. Line them all up from bad, from worst, worst of all to the bad, and I'm at the head of the line. And the Holy Spirit said, yeah, you're right. And allowed him to put it in the scriptures. Our heart is desperately wicked. I, we do this all. I look at my own life and a lot of times I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. And then I say, now, wait a minute. You got the wrong standard. I mean, yeah, if I compare myself to all you lumps of coal, I'm pretty good. But now let's go against the purity of God's holiness and I'm not all that good. Mm-hmm. And what do we know about our standard? Our standard is totally fouled up. All the dials are wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we grade on a curve, but God doesn't. See, God sees the heart. God, God sees your heart. That's, that's the problem. You know, externally, I can put on a really good facade and I can look really good to you all. But do you know what my heart is thinking? There's always got to be temptation. That's the problem. Heart is deceitful. Romans three ten through eighteen talks about all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, without exception, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's look at that. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter three. This is a very good passage to spring. This is the end of Paul's indictment of humanity in Romans. He's indicting humanity and he says in Romans 3.10, 
as it is written. Now, what's he do? He's going to quote a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures. He's going to compile a bunch of them. None is righteous, no, not one. Nobody. No one understands. What does it mean no one understands? Well, the word there used is no one has spiritual understanding. Does, does the pagan out there have spiritual understanding? No. Why do you, why do you think all the talk, TV talk shows are pure, unadulterated drivel? Because they don't understand what is right and wrong. There is none out there. Now, they have a, they have a conscience. They have a compass. But the dials are all fouled up. It's all, it's all out of whack. None, there's none who understands truly spiritual things. Uh, no one seeks God. Now, there's a good one. Now, a lot of people say, well, I, I sought God. No, you didn't. You didn't seek God. What do you seek? See, I want peace. I want joy. I want happiness. I want fulfillment. By the way, just as an aside, that's, that's behind a lot of our modern evangelistic things. Um, come to Jesus. He'll solve your problems. Will he? The sight of eternity? Probably not. That's a sort of a bad sell, isn't it? No one seeks God. They seek what God gives. They seek joy or some hole in their life or some, some need that they have. But left to themselves, men do not seek God for who God is. They seek God for what He gives. That's what they want. They want the goodies. They don't want God. They want what God will give them. And He's saying no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. The idea there is, is they're like sheep. What did Isaiah say? All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone's turned to his own way. Men have gone all different kinds of ways. They're like sheep. They've just wandered all over the place. All of them have done that. All of us have done that. And it says they are become worthless. I love that Greek word. This is a cool Greek word. I remember that one because it's such a weird one. It means sour milk. What do you do with sour milk? Gross. Right? It's really gross. What is Paul, what is Paul saying? We are, in God's eyes, we are all like sour, rotten, stinking milk. They're soured. We're rotten to the core. And it is so stinky and icky and ugly that the only thing you can do with it is toss it out. That's how bad it is. And then it says here, their throat, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave. I have a brother-in-law who is an EMT and one time he had to go pick up somebody that had died a few days before and fallen on a radiator in the middle of winter. He said he couldn't get the smell out of the ambulance for weeks and I remember that rotten that's how rotten it is you are stinking when your throat opens up and out comes words what comes it's the rottenness of the grave the decay of rotting flesh this is a picture this is a word picture it shows how bad you are what did Isaiah when, when, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up what did he say damn me I'm a man of unclean Lips. You say, wait a minute, you're the best guy in the whole country. You're the prophet of God. You speak for God. What do you mean you have unclean lips? Well, compared to God, what did he have? Unclean lips. lips. His throat was an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used the seat, the venom of asps is under their lips. How do you like that? You open your mouth and out comes poison. Out comes the venom of an asp. And the the, the word picture here is 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 a deadly snake. It opens its mouth and bites and kills. Our words kill. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. What's the idea of being full? Everything that comes out is cursing or bitterness. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is the speech of the world like? Cursing and bitterness. And it says here, their feet are swift to shed blood. They're ready to kill. Destruction and misery are in their way. The way of peace they have not known. And then he sums up, there's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, the average person out there lives in total non-fear of God. 
total non-fear. One of the things, and again, as I'm reading through this um, work on Jonathan Edwards, one of the things that he resolved, he said, I resolved to live my life so as to be con- every day conscious of the torments of those in hell and the glories of heaven. He lives his entire life realizing that at any day he could fall over dead. You know, that's the way they lived back then. See, we have medical stuff here now that can prolong your life. You realize most of the time in human history, when you went to bed at night and you had a little bit of a fever, you may not wake up the next day. There's no medications, there's no penicillin, there's no NyQuil, there's none of that stuff. You might be dead. And he lived his entire life realizing he was one step from eternity. And that gave him a fear of God. Today, people have no fear of God. People do anything they want, they live any way they want, and that's nah, okay. They live in total ignorance of God's God out there. Until they step off into eternity and find out there is a God and they're in trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if you wanna, if you wanna know if God is gracious or not, realize that God doesn't wipe them out right then. One of the guys, I think it was Harry Emerson Fosdick, used to have a, he used to go around speaking. He was a, an infidel. He always had a watch. He dared God to kill him within an hour. If God existed, He can kill me within an hour. Well, one day Henry Emerson Fosdick died, didn't he? And he's not saying that right now. Look, folks, people live... What Paul is doing here, Paul is summing up humanity, saying, you know, you're all rotten to the core. Now, are all of us as bad as we could be? No, we're not, right? We're not as bad as we could be. But here's the thing. All of us are radically depraved. We're going to talk about radical depravity in our discussion on Calvinism. Point number one, radical depravity. What does that mean? It means sin has affected every part of your life. There's no part of your life that's not been touched by the stain of sin. Your thinking is wrong. Your values are wrong. Your viewpoints are wrong. Your conscience is all fouled up. Sin has affected and fouled up everything in the human being. And only God can fix that. You're not going to fix it on your own. I like the passage in Isaiah, can a leopard change his spots or an Ethiopian change his skin? No. Neither can you who are accustomed to do evil do good. God's saying it's no, it's no, it's easier for an Ethiopian to change his skin than for you to decide to do good. You can't do it. It's radical. Depravity has affected all of us. And Paul is saying, you know, there's nobody that measures up in God's standard. Nobody. We're all radically depraved. You ever run into a perfect person? No. What are the consequences of sin? What, what has sin done in the universe? Well, upon Satan, he lost his position in heaven, didn't he? Where was he, by the way? He was our single. He was closest to God. I mean, of all the angelic, of all the created beings in the universe, who was number one? Lucifer. And he fell. He was the top. He lost that. And not only did he lose that, what did happen? He will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Why did God create the lake of fire? For the devil and his angels. He lost his position. And he's going to spend eternity outside of the presence of God. What happened to the angels? Well, they were cast out of heaven. The idea there is they're cast out of heaven as their permanent abode. Do they have access to heaven now? Yeah, they do, but someday they won't. And where do they get to go? Like a fire along with Satan. And by the way, Satan is not, we talk about this, he's not the jailer of the lake of fire, he's an inmate. He's not the warden, he's an inmate. Modern TV shows sort of depict Satan as sort of the warden down there of, of hell. He's sort of the... No, he's not. In eternal hell, Satan is going to be an inmate. What happened to nature? What happened to the wonderful world that God created? Well, Romans 8 tells us that it was made subject to vanity. The creation was... Uh, why, did the, why is the nature decaying? Well, because of sin, because of the effects of sin. 
Decay, death, destruction came upon creation. Weeds. Every time you pull a weed out of your garden, you can thank Adam for it. Or thorns. They all became part of the curse on creation. And, you know, just as an aside, although as Christians we need to care for our environment as good stewards, we need to realize that God has put a curse on it. God has cursed this world because of the sin. And until He lifts the curse, nothing we do is going to make a difference. He's cursed nature. He's cursed, cursed it is the ground. What happened to man? Well, physical death came many years later, didn't it? Why is it that we all die? Because of sin. You ever think, you know, and I, this is just my twisted way of thinking, but you say, well, why did, why did death come into the world? I mean, why, why that? Well, do you ever think of death as being one of those mercies of God? Well, think, think of just existence. What if nobody could be killed? Think of, think of you couldn't, if nobody died. What if Hitler never died? What if you could never kill him? Yeah, we would, yeah. It's a limiter. It's, it's a limiting. What death does, it limits the effect of any one human being. Because no matter how evil you are, there's a termination date built in. And, here, and here's another thing. The longer you live and the more sin you do, the worse your eternal punishment. So it's sort of a mercy to die early if you're a sinner, isn't it? Yeah, think of it in those kind of terms. It's kind of a macabre word way to think about it. But think of it as a... As a yeah, well, for us, we'd go to heaven, but... But what did happen is not only physical death, but spiritual death. We died spiritually. What does it mean that we're spiritually dead? We have no sensitivity to God. Unless God does a work in our heart, we will never turn to God. We're going to talk about that in great detail. We're going to argue about that. We're going to fight about that in the class. Can the average person out there just decide once in a while, I'm going to seek God? No, you can't. What does God... God has to do the initiation. God always has to initiate... The relationship. Because we won't do it on our own. Left to our own, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to decide that it's bad to try and turn gay people into straight people. That's what we're going to do. Because we can't do any different. What was the result of sin on God? Well, his, the rest of creation was interrupted. What does it mean? When God created and He saw all that was good, He rested. But that was only for the seventh day because what happened? Well, now God... Is in the drama of redemption. Now, did God plan this from eternity past? Of course He did. The fall did not take God by surprise, and there wasn't a scramble in the Trinity trying to figure out what to do with the mess. It was all determined. But God is in the process of working and unfolding the drama of redemption. And not only that, but what did God do in the person of His Son? Sacrificed Himself. He died on a cross. Now go figure that one out. You know, I've been, you know, listening and meditating, contemplating a lot the past few weeks. Just think about the cross of Christ. You know, what would it be like if I could get in like a little time machine and go back and stand there at the foot of the cross? What effect would that have on me? To realize that Christ, that that is the perfect, infinitely holy Son of God who's dying for me. We like to think, well, our sins put Him on the cross. Do you realize your sin put Him on the cross? Yes. Personalize it. Mm-hmm. We will never comprehend, I think, in our fallenness, nor in our glorification, the price. We'll never ultimately understand that. That will be a mystery of wonder to us throughout all of eternity. The angels haven't figured it out. They haven't. Think about that. And not only that, His glory is fully revealed. What does that mean? Well, what, That's why God allowed it. 
Why did God allow sin? So that we could see His mercy, His grace, His love, His kindness. Would those things exist had there been no sin in the universe? We would not know it. Well, we know that character quality of God in eternity. If we were all created perfect, God said, by the way, I'm a God of love. And we were all like, what does that mean? What do you mean, God of love? What do you mean you're a God of wrath? What do you mean you hate sin? What's sin? God allowed it to display His character, to display who He is. Quickly, what kinds of sin do we have? Well, it's just a lot of 20,000 foot perspective, but you can sin and not know it, can't you? How many of you sinned and not known it? All of us. We all do that. We all sin and we don't know it sometimes. We all step over the line. We all fall short. And sometimes God has to bring that to our mind to say, wait a minute, what you're doing is not right. And then we have to respond in repentance and faith. But we're ignorant. Sometimes we just don't know we sin. Sometimes we just don't know we've made a mistake. And then sometimes we're just weak, right? We get tired. We get sleepy. We get cranky. You get cranky when you get tired? I notice that women do this a lot. <laughs> They're a little bit easier to get cranky than men are, but no. Go a point. Look, I joke about this, but I'm outnumbered. There's only four of us guys in here, and the rest of us, we're outnumbered. No, five of us, we're outnumbered. But I know this when Donna gets really tired, she gets cranky. It's frailty of the flesh, right? You get tired, you get sleepy, you don't feel well, and some idiot does something, and you just lash out. You know, we, we all fall into that. Sometimes we're just not paying attention. We're just not watching what's going on. And that's interesting because it says, Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. You've got to be careful. All of us have to be careful. We have to watch what's going on around us. We're not paying attention. Sometimes sins of presumption. What are these? Well, this is a bad one for a lot of Christians. Well, Okay, I'll sin because God will forgive me anyways. That's presuming on the nature and character of God, isn't it? David said, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sin. I have to admit that there's been a couple of times in my life where I've done this. The temptation is great and you say, well, I, well God will forgive me anyways. It doesn't matter. Now, will He forgive you? Of course He will, but that doesn't give you the right to to do that kind of thing. Don't presume on his nature. Don't. And by the way, here's, here's something to really ponder. You show me someone who sins and it doesn't bother them because God will forgive them anyway. I'll show you someone who may not even be a Christian. Because if you're a true believer, do you want to sin? No. You'll sin, but you don't want to. And if you sin and don't care about it, there's a problem. There's also the unpardonable sin. We have a lot of people, this has been a big argument, and I think we've talked about it before. Some say, well, the unpardonable sin is that you just don't respond. It's, it's rejecting Christ. That's the unpardonable sin. Well, someday, if you keep rejecting Christ, you're going to die without Christ, and that's not pardonable, is it? But I think what really is in view here is the sin that the Pharisees committed when they ascribed the works of Christ to the devil. Remember in, Rome, in Matthew 12 when they said, well, you're doing this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Christ says, you know, you can speak evil of me and that can be forgiven, but you can speak evil against the Holy Spirit. It can't be forgiven, not only in this age, but the age to come. Why is that? Because the agent of regeneration is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that brings conviction of sin, right? So if you ascribe the works of God, the works that Jesus was doing to Satan, can you be forgiven that? No. There's a sin unto death. Um, that's mentioned in 1 John. There's a sin unto death. And most commentators say, well, there are certain sins that lead to death, don't they? If you commit these sins, they're going to lead you to death. There's not a sin that you commit and then God strikes you dead. Now, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they did, right? But most people aren't going to commit that. I'm trying to get to James chapter 1 here is what I want to do. 
What's the effect of sin on us? Well, it makes us lose our joy. When you sin, are you joyful? No, not as a Christian, you're not. It robs us of peace. What kind of peace? The peace of God. You ever sin and just feel yucky in your spirit? Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. It clouds our ability to know God's will. There are people who say, I want to know God's will, I want to know God's will, and yet they live their lives in sin, and that's going to cloud your ability to hear the voice of God. If you're living in sin, you can't hear that very well. It causes us to lose fellowship. Notice what it says here for believers. It's fellowship. It's not you lose your relationship. You use the fellowship. Think of a good friend that you have, and if you've done something to, to violate that relationship, what does that do to your friendship? It stresses it out, right? That's what it is with God. Here's a big one. It causes us to lose confidence in our salvation. If you're living in sin, what happens to the assurance of your salvation? You don't feel it, do you? A lot of times Satan comes along and says, well, if you're really a Christian, you wouldn't be doing that. And you buy in and say, well, I guess I must not be a Christian. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter two or chapter 1. He says, add to these things, faith, virtue, patience. For if you do these things, you're not going to forget that you were forgiven of your sins. If you're working on your Christian life, if you're working on your sanctification and you see an increasing pattern of holiness, you're going to realize that God is doing a work in your heart. And if you're falling in the patterns of sin and disobedience, what happens? It's like David said, my bones dried up within me. I lost the joy of my salvation. It can cause us to lose our health. There are consequences to sin, isn't there? You smoke a lot, you might get lung cancer. You drink a lot, you might get cirrhosis of the liver. Stress will kill you. Yeah. What is it? Stress produces heart disease, right? And cancer and all kinds of... Yeah. Sin can cause disease and death. It makes us spiritually apathetic. There are people who say, well, I just don't feel very close to God. I don't feel... Well, of course not. If you're living in sin, what happens? does. Sin affects all of us. It affects everybody. You don't sin in isolation. You realize that. You don't sin in isolation. How about Achan? Remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament? Achan saw the Babylonian garment and the wedge of silver and said, well, you know, I can just take this. Nobody will know it. I'll hide it in my tent. Big, fat, hairy deal. And then what happens at Ai? Well, a bunch of Israelites got slaughtered because of his sin. He thought he was just sinning in isolation, right? Just me. But it affected the whole nation. And it caused the death of many people. How would you like to have been the wife of one of those soldiers that was killed because Achan took a wedge of silver? How would you feel? Sin affects everybody. What's the cure for sin? This is easy. What's the cure for sin? The cure for sin, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this. The cure for sin is confession. What does it mean to confess your sin? The Greek word is homo legeo. What does homo mean? Same. Legeo means to say. Confession is you say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. It's the same thing. A lot of times we confess our sins saying, well, you know, Father, I was just really a little bit tired, you know, and you've got to understand, I had a bad day. What are you doing when you say that? Yeah, you're trying to, you know, well, you've got to understand, look, that doesn't cut it with God. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter whether you're tired or whether you're not tired, sin is sin. So the way you confess your sin is you look God in the eye and say, it's evil. It's wrong. It's wicked. Forgive me for doing it. No excuses. 
No covering it up. No yeah but. Just coming right out and saying it is sin. We say the same thing about it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And by the way, you know, this is the thing. Yeah, here's the thing you got to understand. God sees your heart anyways, right? He knows what you did. You're not informing God when you sin. You're not going to God and say, forgive me for getting mad at that lady who pulled out in front of me. And God said, oh, I forgot. I didn't know you, I didn't know you got mad. I wasn't paying attention. He knows exactly what you did. And He knows when you did it. And he knows why you did it. He knows your heart. Don't try to form a sin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like Matthew, you know, Matthew, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's it mean to be poor in spirit before God? You realize that there's nothing you bring to the table. You don't bring any goodness. You don't bring any merit. You bring nothing. You're, you're bankrupt. You have empty pockets. Blessed are they that mourn. Mourn for what? Over your sin. That's the way to salvation. That's the way to the narrow way. That's how you get through the narrow gate. You confess your sin. You agree with God. You mourn over it. You hate it. Oh, wretched man that I am. You're like Paul in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? It's to hate it. It's to confess it. And you look at the great leaders, the great Christian leaders in history, like Jonathan Edwards and others, they were men that were overwhelmed with their own sinfulness. And you say, well, good night. They're the best ones on the continent. Well, that doesn't matter. Because the closer you get to God, the more defects you see. That's the way it is. You got it. Now, you've just got more than most of the people who have argued about the salvation controversy in the 90s got. There's a big controversy in the 90s which basically said, well, you can take Jesus as your Savior and not really repent of your sin. Where do you get that? Where does that come from? That's screwy. What do you mean, I can ask God to forgive me but not repent? We have to repent. What does repentance mean? It means to turn around and go the other way. Now, somebody says, well, it just means to change your mind about Jesus. No, it doesn't. John is preaching and a bunch of the Pharisees come up and he says, uh, what are the fruits of repentance? Well, uh, here's the fruits of repentance. Here's what it means to repent. If you have two coats, give, some, give one away. If someone wants you to go with a mile, go with him two miles. Soldiers, be content with your wages. What is, what's John doing? If you're truly repenting, there's going to be some certain activities and attitudes and actions that come out of your life. And what we have is sometimes we have people who say, well, I came to Jesus. Um, did you repent of your sin? Well, you know, I know sin's sort of ucky, but nah, you know, I didn't really prepare it. Well, did you confess your sin? Well, what? no, not really. I mean, I just got God's phone number and we're connected. Look, that's not salvation. Salvation, when, when you come to God in true repentance, what it, how do you get on the narrow way? Matthew 5, you get on the narrow way by being broken over your sin, by mourning over it, by confessing it. That's how you get on the narrow way. You, you get on the broad way by not confessing it. That's the broad way. I'm, I'm, I get on a soapbox on this, but I get irritated when people say, well, I can come to Jesus and not repent. What do you mean? How, how can you come to Jesus and not repent? What if you don't recognize something Maybe not, but what you do recognize, what do you do? You repent of it. Did, did, did I repent of every sin I ever committed when I became a Christian? No. There were sins I did. I didn't know there were sins yet. But I knew that there were some that were, and what did I do to the ones that I knew? I repented. 
The, the point here, folks, is don't try to snooker God. He sees it anyway. Just admit, own up to it. God sees the jelly all over your face. He doesn't need to know you're in the jelly jar. You're not informing Him. He sees it all over your face. He knows it's there. Just don't try to put one over on Him. And, and that's why when you look at the ministry of Jesus, the tax collectors and the publicans and the sinners got into heaven before the Pharisees. Because what did the Pharisees not see? Well, we're not sinful. In fact, we're pretty righteous. In fact, we're really righteous. And God is, and Jesus said, no, you're not. The tax collectors and the publicans and the sinners recognize their brokenness, their bankruptcy. They are coming in brokenness over their sin. They get into heaven. You guys, you don't need, you're out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't want to. And that, and that is evidence. Look, that is evidence of true salvation. True salvation is evidenced by a brokenness over sin. So if you ever wonder, well, am I really a Christian? If you're broken over sin, if you're repenting, if you're asking God to forgive you and you don't want to do that, that is evidence of salvation, not evidence of not having it. That's evidence of it. Because we need to hate it. We forsake it. We run away from it. So how can you prevent sin in your life? How can, how can you as a person, how can you, do, how can you be proactive? How can you be proactive in, in working on this thing of sin? Well, here's two major things. I found these true in my life. Number one, memorize scripture passages. If you have a particular weakness in an area, pick an area, any area, whatever area of sin you can think of. If you have a weakness in that area, think of and memorize all the scriptures having to do with that. If you like to gossip on the telephone, memorize all the passages talking about slander and gossip and things. And what will happen is the Holy Spirit will bring those passages to your memory while you're doing that, and it won't be fun anymore. If you have a problem with covetousness, what do you need to do? Well, memorize passages having to do with covetousness or stealing, or sloth, or laziness, or lust, whatever it is, memorize Scripture. What did David say? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You want to get to a point where you, don't, where you have a, a repertoire of, of things against Satan? Remember, remember we talked about the spiritual armor? The sword of the Spirit, which is the sayings? That's how you deal with it. Then this is a no-brainer, avoidance. Now you say, wow, that's profound. No, it isn't. Just think about it. If you have a problem with uh, covetousness, don't go to the mall. Right? Just don't go fill your mind with it. If you have a problem with lust, don't watch certain TV shows. Don't expose yourself to this stuff. If you like to uh, take a little bit too much alcohol, don't live above the bar. Avoid it. Just go buy it. Don't, don't expose yourself to it. That's not very spiritual, but it's true. You need to run and hide. What does that mean? Get away from things. I found this particularly true in my life where, you know, I had friends in my past life that, you know, they like to gossip and slander. And eventually I had to say, you know, I just can't hang around with them anymore because if I hang around with them, I'm going to be sucked into that and I don't need that, so I'm just going to not hang around them. And of course, I'm a holier than now and all this other kind of stuff and everything else. But you know what? I just don't need to expose myself to that. But along with that too, you need to place yourself in people who do the opposite. Right. Because you'll sin and keep sinning and keep keeping yourself isolated. And see that? Remember that's what we talked about last week. Psalm 15. Who gets to hang around with God? People who love what God loves and hate what God hates. So if you hang around people who love the Lord, hang around people who are positive influences on you and avoid those who are constantly dragging you down. Don't, don't do that. Prayer. Ask God to help you. God wants you to not sin worse than you want to not sin. So ask Him for help. And be alert. Watch. Keep your, ha- keep your eye out. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's cre- 
as, as a believer, I found that I've had to... No, well, now, I know the situation might tempt me, so I'm going I'm to see it a long way off before it comes upon me and gets me. You know, it's easy to avoid the lion when he's a mile away. It's kind of tough to do it when he's next to you. So don't expose yourself to this stuff. Learn, learn to watch. So let's look at James 1, 13 through 18. We'll spend the next few minutes in this passage. This is probably the most descriptive passage in the New Testament on this topic of sin, or on, on, on what sin is. James 1, 13 through 18. Um, we're just going to exegete it as we go down through it and explain it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James is talking about marks of true salvation. How do you know you're truly born again? How do you know you're a true Christian? Well, when you're tempted, you don't blame God for it. That's one of the things. Don't let anybody say when he is being tested. The word here for test, parasmos, means to be tested. So when you have a test come along your way, and in this case the connotation is a test to sin, a temptation, when that comes along, don't say, it's God's fault. God's doing this. Because what does it say? Temptation does not come from God. Why does temptation not come from God? God doesn't want you to sin. Why is He going to try to get you to do it? Do you ever think of that? Does God want you to sin? Then why in the world would He ever tempt you to do it? That's nonsense. That's crazy talk. God's not going to get you to... Not just going to tempt you to do something that he died on the cross to clean you up of. <laughs> He's not going to do that. So it doesn't come from God. And the word here, interestingly, in the Greek text, hupo and apo, from, or, or he does not tempt, and it doesn't come from God, means it's not only not a direct cause, God is not even an indirect cause of your temptation. God does not even indirectly cause you or tempts you to sin. In other words, God is not part of your temptation. God is not causing it. Primarily or secondarily or tertiarily, God is not involved in your temptation. But it says here, but each person is tempted when he is lured by his, and enticed by his own desire. Where does temptation come? It comes from our own Epithumia, desires. Interesting word there. There's two fishing terms used there. Akalco and Deliazo. How is it that we are tempted? We are tempted when we are lured. We are lured away by our own desires. Now understand, desires. Is desires good or bad? Huh? Yeah, it's not. This is not saying that the desire is bad. Desire is normal. If you're thirsty, is that a normal desire? Yeah, your body's telling you, "Hey, I need some liquid." If you're hungry, is that bad? No. Is sexual desire necessarily bad? No. None of that is bad. What is bad about it? When we are lured by it, there's a difference. And what? James is saying is, is temptation comes not from God, but temptation comes from the fact that we are drawn, our, our desires are being drawn by something. We're being lured. And that's different for all of us, isn't it? I mean, think of a fish. You know, if you drop a nice big juicy earthworm in front of a fish, what is he going to do? Go for it. Now, you drop a nice, big, juicy earthworm in front of me and it doesn't affect me in the least bit, does it? In fact, most of like, ugh, gross, get it away. You know. The point is there's something within the fish's nature that draws it to the bait. And that's what James is saying here. What is it that, what, where does temptation come from? Temptation comes from our desires that draw us into something. And the hook is baited in front of us. It's, it, it's there. We're drawn away by our own lust and enticed. We're enticed. We're drawn to that. It, we're, the hook is baited. 
And that happens to all of us, you know, and it's different for different ones of us. You know, women might see a pretty dress and be drawn to covetousness. I want that. Me? I have no intention of wearing a dress. It's irrelevant to me. I'm not tempted by that at all, but you are. Now, you put a good-looking woman in front of you and you probably don't think anything of it. Me? I'm enticed. Why? Because there's, I'm different. We're all, we're all that way. And we all have those weaknesses. And, you know, you put a big, nice, you know, alcoholic drink in front of me and I am not tempted the least bit. Now, you do that to an alcoholic and he's got to have it, right? The whole point here is that temptation comes when we're drawn away of our own lust. That's where the temptation comes. The desire of the flesh then cause our mind to think, how can I satisfy that? We're drawn away, we're unless enticed. And then it says here in verse 14, then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. It means to impregnate there. The desire impregnates the thought in us and then we then become to sin. Now, here's the question. Is it wrong to have a desire? No. Is it wrong to be drawn by a desire? No, not necessarily. What is wrong? When you think about it, when it comes to the imagination, and you start thinking about, how am I going to get that? How am I going to indulge myself in that? How am I going to fall to that? That's where the sin comes from. The sin does not come from being, from being tempted. Sin does not come from being drawn. Sin comes from acting upon it. Take the case of David. He's out walking along the roof of his palace and he sees Bathsheba over there bathing. Was it a sin for him to see her? That was an accident, right? Just happened. Now, if David had walked away, we wouldn't have had that whole chapter, did we? But what happened? He kept looking. And that desire led to how am I going to fulfill it, which led to lust, which led to the whole sordid affair. That's the way sin works. It, look, ac- we, we accidentally, you know, we just walk through life, we're going to be bombarded by this stuff. We're all bombarded by it every day. Do you act upon it? You know, I watch TV shows and every once in a while they have an inappropriate commercial come on, which are getting worse now. So what do you do? Do you sit there and look at it and think about it and dwell on it or do you just turn the other way? You turn the other way. And you get very good at that after a while. Do you always succeed? No, but make, make an effort. Because that's where sin comes from. Sin comes from the heart. That's what James is saying. Sin comes when you are drawn away of your own lust. When your heart draws you into this and, and you want to fulfill it. And then it says, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. The end product of sin is death. Verse 15. And it is deceptive. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived by it. It's deceptive. It passes itself off as good. That's what it does. Sin is very good at that. It passes itself off as the right thing, as the good thing, as a righteous thing. But it's not. And then just to make sure that we understand that sin does not come from God, he says in verse 17, every good gift and perfect gift comes from down from the Father of lights with whom is no variables, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. What is he saying there? Why did God save you? So that you could sin? Did he save you so that you could sin and just not worry about the consequences? Why did God save you? To make you holy, for crying out loud. God didn't save you to sin. So why would God, a good God who gives perfect gifts, who does good things, who wants you to be holy, be involved in trying to get you to sin? doesn't make any sense at all. Where does sin come from? It's your heart. It's you. 
What did Ziggy say? We met the enemy and he is us. The problem, folks, is not, is not the devil. The devil doesn't make you sin. You sin very well on your own. Are we going to be delivered from sin someday? Absolutely. How does that happen? Well, right now we have been delivered from original sin, right? The guilt of Adam has been removed. We are now identified with Christ, Romans 5. Someday the pollution, our fallen flesh, will be removed or transformed at the second coming. We will, when we go to heaven, we will not be able to sin. Our flesh will be gone. The fallenness that we lug around will be gone. And our sins that we have committed are forgiven by the blood of Christ. Someday we will be holy and perfect. But between now and then, we struggle. And we're going to study that struggle as we look at um, our next major topic, the doctrine of salvation, which is going to start the first part of September here. So, Any comments or questions? I'm done just on time. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful day you've granted to us. Help us to hate sin like you hate it. Help us to see it as in all of its ugliness and all of its wickedness. Help us to be honest with ourselves, to speak the truth in our own heart, to see that we are radically depraved, all of us are, and that we would be serious about dealing with sin in our own lives, that we may be holy before you. And thank you for cleaning us up. We couldn't clean ourselves up, but you did it for us. And we thank you for that. And help us to ponder these truths and make them part of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.